I am Doug Friedman. And I am Meredith Levy. And this is your, your mental, mental breakdown. The roundtable extra bonus super special podcast podcast feature psychedelic edition. Yes. <laughs> We are being joined today on our roundtable by two guys I absolutely love. We have from Los Angeles, Cal- well, actually from New York, but in Los Angeles, California, Jose Mata, who is a therapist, used to be in my building, trained in somatic experiencing, EMDR, CBT, and currently working on the phase three clinical trials of the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD program with MAPS. Welcome, Jose. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate that introduction. If it, Can I add to that a little bit? Is that okay? Hell no. That's it. That's all <laughs> Well, I think, you know, for me, it's important to add a little bit because I find that a lot of times in Western culture, we introduce ourselves by way of our professions or, you know, more of a, this is what I do. This is what I do. Mm. And for me growing up, the introduction was more like the family that you came from. Mm. And so while all that is very true, everything you said about CBT, EMDR, SE, et cetera, I think for me, it's important that I come forth as the son of Pedro Mata, also the son of Azucena Guillén. My uh, parents are from South America, from Ecuador. I was born in New York City, raised in the Bronx, and we are in Los Angeles. Well, you and I are. Um, I think Meredith, too. And so we are thankful to the Tongva land that we are, that's holding us up in space and providing some grounding for us. So I just want to throw that in there. Absolutely. Love that. (laughs) I like this guy. Thank you. And uh, another guy I like, uh, Dr. Craig Heacock, who is a psychiatrist based in Colorado. And he's also was a therapist in the clinical trials of the MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD MAPS program. Man, that is a mouthful. And I'll get you guys to break that down. Started out as a teacher, you just told me, and then actually went to medical school, went through that all, became a psychiatrist, and now is doing a practice and specializes, if I can say that, in ketamine treatment and psychedelics and has his own podcast, which is fantastic. If you don't know it, check it out. It's called Back from the Abyss. And it focuses on people healing from their trauma and their experiences with psychedelics or not, and really gets into each person's personal stories, which is really nice and heartwarming. And I'm very, very happy to have him here. So Craig, welcome to you as well. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. Anything you want to add to your intro? I'd love to run. (laughs) (laughs) I've always had this thought is when I was playing sports and had to run, it was very meditative for me. I, I don't know how well you all know EMDR. I mean, I assume we all know kind of what that is, but it, it's sort of like a, to me, a form of that, like mm-hmm. the repetitive mm-hmm. motion of running and mm-hmm. where you just go with that. It's sort of getting yourself into that state of mind, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I, I did some EMDR after a patient's suicide that was really... It actually really wrecked me for a few years, but mm. the, it was incredibly helpful. But in the the happy place or the safe place in the EMDR was, I was running through this Aspen forest in Colorado in the fall, just nice. kind of undulating trail. So I would go back and forth to my patient's suicide in this Aspen trail running. And that was just 
yeah, I could just feel it changing wow. my psyche and my, my soul. And that's a, to me, such a great natural segue to talk about using psychedelics in psychotherapy and in healing. Cause it's some people can access that kind of place, whether it's a happy place or just a meditative place or, or altered state. Some people can't, and some people are very locked where they are, you know, whether it's trauma mm -hmm. or depression. And I'm just wondering if, if you guys being people that are in it, if you can kind of break down a little bit of what it means when we say psychedelics in therapy, because I, I know there's studies, it sounds like you've both been a part of the MDMA trials. So you know what that is, but I think just in general, psychedelics in therapy, I think people who don't know and even people that do, like myself, might think, oh, it's just like taking mushrooms in the desert and going on a spirit quest, right? But it's <laughs> not. I'm so glad that, that you described it the way that you did, because I think part of what people maybe don't grasp about this is that it's MDMA-assisted therapy or psilocybin-assisted therapy or ketamine-assisted therapy. And the therapy component is really critical to the healing because if, if the therapy component wasn't a part of the protocol or a part of the, how we're approaching these substances from the vantage point of medicine, then anybody who's ever done ecstasy, anybody who's ever done ketamine, anybody who's ever done any psychedelic LSD would not have any emotional disturbances or imbalances or whatever you want to say, mental health disorders. I think right. the context is really important. Are you familiar with the term set and setting? Mm -mm. So set and setting is the context within which it happens. And so set is really like the mindset that you go into the experience with. So there can be some intention setting or what you want to get from the experience. The way I see an intention is it's a conscious aim towards an embodied action. And so there's something that you want to receive from the experience. And as such, if we're, if we're looking at the universal law of reciprocity, if we're receiving something, then there's something that we want to let go of. And in that exchange, when you're taking the medicine, the medicine gives you what you need when you take it. So what's going to naturally surface to the top is what's, what might be getting in the way of you receiving what it is that you want. And so let's say, for example, if you are, if you're looking like many people to have a fulfilling relationship, and that's like the goal that you want from an experience, what's going to come up is what's impeding that from happening. Maybe it was the sexual abuse trauma history, right? That's what's going to come up. And if that comes up in a container, let's say that isn't held with curiosity, with openness, there's a term in an MDMA therapy called the inner healer. And so part of what the people holding the space, the co-therapist do is when possible, direct the participant to go inside and see what might be happening in their body or ask their intuition, ask uh, that part of their inner knowing to see what might be happening. And so the set and setting is really important as well as the, the therapy part, right? That, that you're doing it with people that can hold space for you and that can, I err on the side of caution of using the word guide you because we're not really guiding anybody. It's like, do this, then don't do this, try this. That's not really what's happening. So 
do you control the amount of MDMA? For example, can you, am I sitting with you like rolling for eight hours while we do therapy or do we, <laughs> do we do it for an hour and then you just send me out into the world and I'm all high or can you make yeah. it? So I just do it for one hour and then I'm done. No. That's what so, I want. <laughs> great question. So the, the <laughs> it's, they're eight hour sessions. So, yeah. So depending on which medicine day or experimental day is what they're called in the study, it can be 80 milligrams of MDMA for the first experimental day. And then actually, I'm sorry, that's not correct. 120, the first one, and then it can go up to 180. Thank you. 180. Mm -hmm. So the dose goes up for the second and third sessions, but the sessions are eight hours. Cause if you have ever rolled Meredith, I'm sure you know that it does not go away in an hour. <laughs> uh, that's my fear. <laughs> yeah. Back in my twenties, I remember I was with another couple, my wife, and it was the first time they'd taken MDMA and the husband, my wife and I were having a lovely time. And at one point the other woman curled up in a ball and started sobbing uncontrollably and hyperventilating. And her husband's like, what is going on with her? I said, I have never seen this. And, and she basically had like a two hour panic attack and screamed and cried. And we had no idea what it was. And it only was when I did the MAPS training and I put it together because years later, my wife told me, you know, she had a horrible incest history. Mm. And I wonder if that was what was going on. And so of course, what happened was she went in with no, she went in with a recreational set setting. And what happened was her, I'm sure her incest trauma was unleashed and we're sitting there watching her like, what is up with you? Why aren't you having fun? Now contrast that with something that happens in my office regularly, people coming out of high dose ketamine, sobbing uncontrollably. And when that first started happening, I thought, oh, people are having, is it a bad trip? No, it's a difficult experience. So that woman decades ago, she was having a really bad experience because there was no, there there was no Mm. therapeutic container for her. And, but in my office, when people come out of high dose ketamine and sobbing, you know, I'll, I'll hold their hand and I'll say, this is difficult. This is difficult. But as I found, sometimes people through the higher dose ketamine sessions just cry. Like the eye shade will be sopping wet and they'll say, I don't even know why I'm crying. And again, when I started doing these sessions, maybe four years ago, I thought, oh no, they're having this really awful ketamine experience. And now I realize now difficult maybe, or cathartic or, or heavy. But again, there's, there's a whole container there. I'm preparing them, you know, anybody with the trauma history, I say, look, higher dose ketamine, like you may get this complete rush of just like trauma, catharsis, all pouring out. And I'm going to be there for you. And that's good. Like, again, as Jose mentioned, the inner healer idea, I believe that is happening with ketamine too, that mm-hmm. the body and the psyche and the spirit tends to go where it needs to go. If, if there's the right holding and the right preparation and the right follow-up. I want to go into some of these substances because we're talking about MDMA, ketamine. And to me, there's, there's a fine line between recreational curiosity and true clinical therapeutic use, right? So if you guys can kind of touch on that, maybe with a little breakdown of substances, I don't know how versed our listeners are going to be in what's the difference between an MDMA, a ketamine, a psilocybin, a a DMT, and just good old fashioned mushrooms or or weed for that matter. So psilocybin is the active ingredient in mushrooms the same way thc is the active ingredient in cannabis it's what gets you high 
MDMA is the active ingredient in Mali. And then let's see, there's also Iboga that comes from the Ibogaine plant. DMT is the active ingredient that gets you high from ayahuasca. But just to be clear, uh, none of this is legal in the United States with the exception of maybe ayahuasca. Ketamine is legal. And ayahuasca is legal if it's used in sacrament with uh, religious organizations. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's legal because you're in a trial. Yes. So it is legal to use MDMA in the context of a clinical trial and, of course, psilocybin uh, in the context of a clinical trial. Craig, I know you are, you are also working with the, the same trial. Maybe you can just explain... We don't have to go too in depth, but sort of the road from in terms of like this has been going on for decades. It's not like, oh, they just started and they're, you know, fast tracking like they did with the vaccines for for COVID. Like this has been going on for a long time, right? Right. So in short, to get a medication approved, there's three steps. Mm. And the first one, phase one, is to show safety in a small population, which is usually tens of people, maybe hundred. Hmm. Phase two is to show safety and efficacy in a small population. And phase three is to show efficacy in a larger population, which means you have to show that it's statistically significant, better than placebo. This is a lot of statistical work that goes into phase three. What's super, well, there's so many interesting things about the, the MAPS trial, but one is that it's looking like MDMA may get approved with fewer subjects in phase three than almost any medication in history, save three or four blockbuster cancer drugs. Holy crap. Wow. Is that because this, the significance has been higher in terms of the stats? Right. Because the statistical effect size is so high. So they're, they're thinking it may actually get approved in a couple of years with some, with an N of maybe 200 or 225 or 250, which is astounding because, you know, you look at something like Lipitor or Prozac or those are thousands and some medications takes tens of thousands of people in phase three to show enough effect size that the approval will come. So that's pretty astounding. And, but yeah, it's been a long process because it's all been funded privately yeah. Usually to get a, a medication approves hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh. But interestingly, you know, in the United States, if a medication is approved by the FDA for anything, it can be used for anything else as long as you have some medical justification. So, you know, uh. Viagra was supposed to be a blood pressure medicine, but it didn't work very well, but worked great for impotence or wow. ketamine, you know, has been given tens of millions of times over the last 50 years for general anesthesia and veterinary anesthesia. Mm. But now it's, I think it's number one use in the U S now is for depression. It's gone way past its use in general anesthesia, That's amazing. but it's not, it's not FDA approved for general anesthesia. I mean, ketamine only has FDA indication for general anesthesia, but since it has that, it can be used for other things. Interesting. So then something like MDMA being targeted for PTSD, if that's approved, it can then be used for virtually anything. Couples therapy or psychospiritual exploration. Yeah. Right. Wow. Wow. And to be, to be clear, this isn't legalizing Molly. This is legalizing the use of MDMA in therapy treatment for somebody that's been diagnosed. 
Right. Yes. Right. So the model was not like that you would go to Walgreens and get your 20 <laughs> capsules. No. <laughs> so the model that MAPS is proposing is that there'll be the central pharmacy and distributor and training therapists. And at least in the initial years, you will go to a MAPS trained or approved therapist to right. do MDMA work. Got it. So, okay. I want to dig now a little bit and get into what I think is maybe not legal, but more a part of our culture, or at least what we see, oh God, I hate to say it this way, but trending right now, which is the the ayahuasca journeys or the, the plant medicine use and using that for therapeutic reasons, where it's not just recreational use. It's not just college kids going out to the desert and doing shrooms and, and having a great trip. It's people that are really looking to have a, a deeper exploration of themselves or healing from some inner wound that they can't otherwise access. I, I don't know if you guys are how comfortable you are talking about that, but I would think that that's what people not in a clinical trial are talking about and are exploring and, and potentially doing. So I think we touched upon this a little bit earlier in terms of set and setting. I think for ayahuasca, I, I will be fully transparent that I myself have attended some ayahuasca retreats. The thing with ayahuasca, or at least my experience with ayahuasca is that it is an individual experience within a group setting. Mm -hmm. And so there is a shaman and there are what's, what are called Icaros. So Icaros are songs sung by the shaman that is holding space throughout the course of the ayahuasca experience. But I think similar to what we were referencing earlier of what makes a challenging trip versus a bad trip is not only how you prepare for the experience, you know, so for example, if you are somebody that typically is a doer, I'm constantly on the go, 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 then maybe the encouragement would be that you engage in more contemplative practices leading up to your experience. If it's the opposite, if you are someone that leads primarily a sedentary life, then the encouragement might be, well, maybe move your body a little bit more. Preparation for, for that type of experience can include spending time in nature, uh, any sort of creative endeavors, any activity or number of activities that's going to support life force energy. So things like that to prepare for the experience. And then there's the experience itself. And then there's how do you integrate the experience? And so how do you interrelate the collection of experiences that you had during your day-long or weekend-long ayahuasca experience into your day-to-day? -day? When you come out of tripping from drinking the brew, do you have a community of people like the space in your psyche, the space in your spirit, the spaces in your body are going to be more open? And so how are you going to meet these open spaces so that you can integrate or interrelate this into your day to day? So because if you don't, if you don't integrate the experience, then essentially you're, you just went to do drugs. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying that. I think that there can also be value from experiencing joy from using substances, but in the context of healing trauma, uh, it's really important that when you come out of the experience of this expansion of awareness or being in spaces of non-ordinary states or where the things that are often solid or rigid or become more malleable, the 
after experience is how do you engage in personal and collective meaning making and maybe even reclaim parts of yourself that have been lost or that have gone into hiding or that are, if we were to look at it from a physiological point of view, that might be stuck in a freeze state or in a fight flight response. Mm -hmm. Wow. I just wanted to add to that. Um, there's a woman I worked with in the map study who's going to tell her story on my podcast next season. And she uh, has severe PTSD and it was very clear to my co-therapist and I that from the first dose that she got the real thing. Eyes dilated, blood pressure up. She'd actually had a number of MDMA experiences and she's like, oh shit. And then the second medicine day where the, we give the big, bigger booster, she got up to 180 milligrams. She said, wow, like this is so powerful. And so she had three very powerful MDMA experiences. My co-therapist and I were utter, I would have bet, I'm not a big better. I would have bet $10,000 that she got <laughs> MDMA. She, on her CAP score, she went into full remission of PTSD. And then a year later, they broke the blind and she got placebo. No, wow. sh what? Yeah. And so she got wow. placebo. And so here, so this is the power. I think this says a lot of things. One is her brain knew what to do because she admitted later that she'd taken MDMA way more than she was honest in, when she got in the study. <laughs> so her brain knew, like those pathways were burned through. She knew what MDMA was going to do. Mm -hmm. And we had this whole three-month intensive crucible for her to work on stuff. And really powerful stuff came up during each of the MDMA days or the placebo days. And we spent hours and hours processing through that. And her PTSD went away with wow. the sugar pill. And I, you know, I think she is a special case in that I, I think if she hadn't had such experience, I think she was an unusually open person considering how much trauma she had. But I just think that's beyond fascinating that because we know in the MAPS trial that people in the placebo arm do improve, a lot of them, at least a sum. But she, she went into, you know, and I still see her occasionally. I mean, she's still in full remission. She's, she's amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, is that partly because they're just still doing the therapy with you and going through the experience? Yeah, because in phase three, I, don't, I would say you might, you're closer to this, but if you look at the therapy contact hours, you have a male, female therapy team. What is it like 60 contact hours or... I don't know the exact, but it's, so there's three day long. So that's the experimental days. And those days are eight hours. So there's three day longs, one month apart. And then there's 12, 90 minute non-medicine therapy sessions. So whatever the math is, 12 times 90 minutes plus eight hours times three. Even if you get placebo, you still are getting a lot of therapy within approximately a three and a half month period. And to add to what Craig was saying, this is the data that just came out from the first part of phase three, is that people that received placebo, 32% of the study participants that received placebo no longer met criteria for PTSD. And that number goes up to 67% uh, if you did receive inactive placebo, which is actually MDMA. If you got the drug, then 67% of study participants no longer met criteria for PTSD. But going back to what we were talking about, 32% uh, of the study participants who did in fact receive placebo did benefit from the just the therapy. I wonder, Craig, you hit a phrase that clinches it for me. And I wonder with Jose, what you're talking about, if there was prior experience with MDMA for those people, 
Craig, when you said those neural pathways were already opened for that person you were talking about. And I firmly believe that. I mean, going back to being a high school kid and reading a, the book about peyote trips and, and Jim Morrison's break on through to the other side and Aldous Huxley's book about that. And it, there's something I think pretty incredible. Jose, you were talking about too, when you unlock the fight, flight, or freeze response and you're in this other state, and then you connect those neural pathways. If you can tap into it again, you can tap into it with a controlled substance with running or a meditative state. I mean, it's possible, I think, to tap into that if that pathway has been created. That's something I believe. I, I don't have nearly the amount of data that MAPS has on that. It's just my own thought. I don't know what you guys think about that. Well, I think along those lines, and this is not published, but this is something our study site, we talked about a lot. We're very interested in the people who only got partial improvement because when the blind was broken with the first part of phase three, there, yeah, there were some people we were quite sure had gotten MDMA and they, they improved. But I think what we all were pretty in unison on, and I, I, I'm betting is going to happen, we're going to see is that this, you know, 70% ish remission rate, it's actually going to be bifurcation. People with early attachment are going to have low pretty low response and are good. not that MDMA couldn't help them, but they're going to probably need a much more extended course. Whereas people that had secure early attachment and then had war trauma, rape trauma, you know, later, it seems like a home run for them. To me, that speaks to even the efficacy of EMDR. You know, if you had a specific trauma versus prolonged trauma, you can get through a specific event or a specific thing. If, if you had a, a rape trauma or a war trauma, there's a specific event, right? As opposed to something over time. And sometimes that's different. I don't want to say it's easier because I don't think that's a good way to phrase it. And I don't think that's accurate, but it, it, it's a different experience if you're going to go through something like this because you're unlocking something that was kind of put in as, as a singular event. I don't want to diminish anybody's experience with trauma at all by saying that, but it, I, I hear a difference that way. It just so matters when the trauma happens. You know, I, I think one of the biggest, I've talked about this on my podcast. I think one of the, my biggest learning points inside over the last few years is zero to two trauma. I just didn't used to give it that much. And it's, you know, how do you assess for that? It's so hard, but I'm realizing like some of my most treatment resistant people, it's just some people who just suffer have zero to two attachment trauma. And it makes sense again, Doug, Doug, when you're talking about pathways and, and what's already kind of burned in the brain, like if you don't have those earliest, most basic attachment pathways, I mean, every, everything is hard about being a human. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that if I could talk a little bit more about what Craig was saying about zero to two trauma or zero to two impacts in the nervous system physiology is that this is where maybe the somatic psychotherapies come into play, like somatic experiencing or sensory motor technique, Hakomi, um, NARM, which is neuroaffective relational model. There's, there's more, which is what, one of the things that psychedelics support individuals to do is really go inside. And so when, so when someone is, if someone has had something happen to them that is pre-verbal, they don't obviously don't have the language to, to describe what happened, but the body, you know, I'm sure we're all, we're all healers in different capacity. I'm hoping we all read the body keeps the score or Peter Levine's waking the tiger. 
And so if we're talking zero to two population, there isn't language at all at that point, but there, you know, we can sense into our bodies and oftentimes we, even today as adults, we we use a, a number of different coping mechanisms to not experience our own felt sense because it's uncomfortable to go inside and so we distract, whether it's through social media or food or gambling or whatever it is. And so if I recently did a training with Dave Berger, he's a faculty at the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute, and he said something that really struck me. He said, neglect is worse than abuse because with abuse, you're getting feedback of your existence. With neglect, there's no feedback of your existence. There's no sensory information to create a body map. And so if, if an infant is, is not experiencing touch, ultimately the, the body is going to be informed by core belief that they don't matter or that they're invisible. And so how do you access that part of your belief as an adult if there, were, there was never language uh, or sensory input to help you create a sense of being. But with these medicines, like MDMA or psilocybin also really drops you into your body, you can either distract in the space or receive guidance from the person that might be sitting for you to gently be open to the experience that's unfolding and to the best of our ability, go towards it. And it's the going in and through of the experience that facilitates bad trips to become challenging trips, because then we have a different relationship with the sensory experience of our body or the movement, the motor movement. There might be an incomplete uh, fight response or legs can start shaking. So I don't know if any of what I said made sense, but (laughs) it makes great sense. Yeah. It's all, it's all fascinating. Yeah. You know, talk a lot about these things being used for people with PTSD or severe depression, or is there a context in which not necessarily like within the trial or anything, but a context in which somebody who says, you know what, like, yeah, I don't know. I know I have blocks. I don't know exactly. I've been in therapy for a while. Like, do I need to go into this with, I'm doing this to fix X, Y, or Z or to work on, yeah. Do I have to have some rape, war, trauma to get something out of this? I would say no. Okay. (laughs) Well, but it's interesting because, well, first of all, with a lot of these substances, you don't know where it's going to go. But again, with the right holding environment and right therapy support, it it can be okay. And one of the interesting things we saw in the first part of phase three, the MAPS trial, is that stuff would come up that would shock the people. Mm -hmm. You know, people would say, this is my index trauma. But then by the second MDMA session, you're realizing, mm, no, nope, that wasn't the index trauma. Right. There's just deeper and deeper and deeper. Right. And so I do think that at least initially when these medicines come online legally, that people will probably come with some primary, indi- you know, I'm seeking help with this yeah. or this. Um, but it, I think as people do the work and go inward, they're going to see, oh, there's a lot of layers to this. Right. I was kind of thinking maybe it would help us find those like, right? Like, I don't know exactly. I know there's something that is preventing me from moving forward, but. Well, I think that psychedelics in mental health very soon may be like uh, MRI of the psyche that people will come in. Ooh, I love that. 
and people, some people come in with known traumas, but other people, okay, something is just deeply not right. Right. Some people do reach that moment where everything just goes quiet. And it's the first time that they've experienced that level of stillness where time does not exist. And within that space, one might be able to zoom out and look at situation X from a different vantage point and within that space relate to it differently. For other people, it may be a situation where there is a lot of resistance. And so we might encourage individuals in that space to observe the resistance right? The, the resistance is there for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's not just showing up for nothing. It's showing up because it's, it's, it may be, and this is my interpretation. Uh, it might, and I never shared this with a client, but it might be simple. It, the, the resistance may be showing up to communicate something or the resistance may just be the way that you protected yourself from whatever. And so let's allow the resistance to be here and where the resistance might be in your body. Mm-hmm. Mm. So everyone's experience is unique to their journey. Yeah. One way to break them down, psychedelics meaning mind manifesting substances, is the ones that sort of dissolve the ego Mm -hmm. uh, and the ego dissolution. That would be the, the LSD, tryptamine, DMT, psilocybin, and ketamine. But then on the other side, MDMA is actually, I would argue, is doing the opposite. If anything, it's bringing your ego deeply to bear, but just bathing it in compassion and warmth and gentleness. Because a couple of the most powerful effects of MDMA are to dial down fear and to dial up trust. Mm -hmm. You figure those are two of the hardest things to do in therapy anyway, and if you have a trauma history, right? Right. So, you know, I think one of the really hard things about trauma work, it can take people years before they just get to a place with trust and fear where they can actually start to do something. Hmm. But uh, the hope, one of the hopes of the MDMA is that, again, it could be this rapid accelerant of those first few painful years and bring people up to a place where the fear is dialed down enough and the trust is dialed up enough that they can start to really do the work of therapy. Again, MDMA-assisted therapy. We're looking at, I think, a, a real sense of understanding what just got unlocked and how to apply that and really taking your time to do that integration back to your body, back to yourself or your sense of self and shape your narrative that way. And from what I've seen, I, I, I know you do ketamine treatments and I'm interested in how you do that with the clients and how you walk through that with them. Cause I, I don't do the therapy with my clients while they're doing the drug. Sometimes I get them <laughs> I've got one on his way home from a weekend, which is really great. It was like, he couldn't wait till the session the next day. It was like, I needed to unload and debrief right now. Here's, here's everything that happened. Can we make sense of it tomorrow? Like, yeah, sure. But you're right there with them. And can you describe a little bit of, as the clinician, what that's been like? I found one of the most powerful things was having a co-therapist because MAPS believes really strongly that having a male and female therapist in the room is important for all sorts of reasons. And one is transference reasons. There's often mother-father transference. And uh, sadly, a lot of people have been abused by men. So having a woman in the room can feel safe. But I had never, I mean, I'd done group therapy and residency, you know, I had supervisors sit in, but to 
actually sit in a room for eight hours with a co-therapist was really cool. And she had very different skills and background than I did. She's very somatic. It was amazing. Like I felt like a Venn diagram, like everything she would do and say, I would think I would never do or say that. And that is so interesting. And she would say afterwards, wow, I'm so glad you're here because the things you do and say, I would never have done that. And so it's this really cool dance with the participant who's doing their deep work. And then the code therapist, like we're doing this dance together for our, you know, and then the integration sessions too. It's, it's so rich to work with the code therapist. And uh, yeah, I felt really fortunate. I, I had a really great person I worked with. And so one of the things I think is going to be really interesting and controversial when MDMA gets medicalized, which looks like is coming soon, will there be two therapists in the room? Because that doubles the price. But for all sorts of reasons, I and many other people feel very strongly that for many people, if not most, there should be two therapists in the room. But that, you know, that makes it less accessible, that makes it more expensive, but it's just such a vulnerable space for people. And again, so we we don't know what's going to come with that because there've already been some really sad, awful boundary violations with psychedelics, current and past, uh, including MDMA, when there was one therapist in the room. So... Uh, but I, yeah, I just loved that was an amazing thing to sit with a co-therapist for that long. Because usually our work is so alone. I mean, I spend all day alone with my patients, but that, that was very special to get. And then get to process afterwards about how she experienced it and how I experienced it. Right. Two and a half more questions. The half questions kind of, I don't know if either of you or any of you are aware of, I think it's a site called Mind Bloom. Oh, you're both nodding. Okay. I just heard of this. If you guys can talk about that for a second. And the the real question behind that is, if a client, whether it's a listener or not, somebody is interested in, oh, I want to do that. Oh, that sounds cool. Like knowing which drug for what treatment and how, what's my road to do it? And how do I do that? And, and somebody asked me like, oh, what do you think of Mind Bloom? And I looked at it and went, what the, f- what is that? Really? No, that can't be real. My understanding of Mindbloom is that they are a psychedelic, a number of psychedelic clinics across the United States that provide the only legal psychedelic is uh, ketamine. And so they will send you, I think they're uh, lozenges, uh, ketamine lozenges. And <laughs> my understanding is that you will take the, the ketamine at home and it's done over zoom as jose is saying this meredith's face you just look aghast craig you're cracking up and i'm just (laughs) soaking this all in so craig you actually do ketamine treatment so i don't know if you have a a response or reaction to this because when i saw this i just kind of went what the fuck you can do ketamine from your own home with somebody on zoom like (laughs) How fucking irresponsible do you have to be? And I'd say part of my language, but I feel very strongly about this. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, low-dose ketamine is pretty safe. So I'm less concerned about the safety of that. Other, than, I'm more concerned that that's just a really waste of time and money and get, you know, presenting false hope. And yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, again, if you think of in the lower-dose ketamine, if the idea is to really strengthen the therapy and deepen the work but you're going to do that on a video screen while you're impaired with ketamine. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, it seems like a clever business model. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that's where I say, if, if a client's going, Ooh, I want to try psychedelics and therapy. Oh, cool. There's my, I could just do it right there from my house. I've been, I've been doing zoom for, you know, a year with my therapist. Why not do this? Well, because that's to me, that's not actually therapeutic. And that's the other question that I had was about microdosing. Cause just by nature of, of what microdosing is, it's still potentially a therapeutic dose, but it's sub hallucinogenic and sub threshold. So there isn't any of what we're talking. That's a whole different realm from what we're talking about. And I don't know, you mentioned it's low dose ketamine. To me, that's, it's not microdosing. That's just low dosing. Yeah. When I say low dose ketamine, I mean a dose where you would be intoxicated, but still able to function if, you know, you're cat got out the door or right. you needed to escape a fire or those are two really, really different. <laughs> your cat escapes or your house is on fire either way. I know, but I mean, you, you could deal like you, yeah. you'd be a little drunk from it, but you're yeah. not. Yeah. Someone might think, are you drunk? Right. Yeah. Higher dose ketamine. No, you are incapacitated. What comes to mind for me as I'm hearing about this is like the process of therapy or the idea of therapy is internalizing experiences of safety, expression, and, and boundaries, and then being able to apply those experiences and situations and relationships in your life. Of course, you know, we're also talking about confronting our ideas about love, attachment, and relationship, and how do you do that? Like Craig was saying, if you're home by yourself looking at a monitor, I don't know. There's just, just seems to be something missing, but who knows? I mean, for all I know, I'm wrong. We didn't think we could do therapy. Uh, if it wasn't, and we would lose something about doing therapy via telehealth and the pandemic, uh, proved that to be wrong. People did get a lot of benefit, but I mean, my initial, my initial gut is like, Oh, I don't know. Yeah. To each his own, I suppose. But if there's a irresponsibility in a medical, you know, then I'm not, it sounds scary to me, to be honest. I mean, mm -hmm. well, yeah. And Craig, you kind of said it, it's a good business model, but is it a medical healing model? Well, the thing I think sucks about it is if somebody tries it and they're like, meh, doesn't do anything, then will that steer them away from potentially trying like a higher dose ketamine treatment, which they really might benefit from. Right. So that's to me, I'm like, oh, well, if they're just like ketamine therapy doesn't work for me because they tried some lozenges at home, like that may not be accurate. Yeah. Right. The difference between low dose ketamine and high dose would be like the difference between camping and space exploration. <laughs> Camping's cool. Like I, lo I love, I was camping two nights ago, but they're not the same thing. I've had people come to do ketamine treatment with me and said, oh, you know, I'm going to listen to this novel and I'm going to bring my mom and sit with me. I'm like, no, that's not the way we do it here. Right. People are like, oh, can I bring it? Can I watch YouTube videos during it? I'm like, mm, no. Like that, that's maybe Lotus. You could do that. Sure. It's really like you are going to detach from yourself, right? Right. Yeah. It really kind of feels like the couple of times I, I did high dose, it felt like I was being shot into the center of the earth on sort of a tectonic centrifuge and being sort of extruded into different cracks of the earth. Jesus Christ. That was the first minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one time I did it, I was paralyzed except for my eyes could move. Is that common? Yeah. You, you're not moving around. I mean, some people shift a little bit. Like I could hear, but I was like, literally couldn't. 
Yeah. But how scary, you know, when, it, when just so a side note, but you know, we've seen these videos and stories about police immobilizing people with ketamine. I mean, I, I think that's torture oh. because, you know, we, we do a lot of work to get people ready for these high dose ketamine right? sessions. You know, we, we tuck them with a blanket, we give mm-hmm. them some music, we pick their soundtrack, we make sure the music's good. We have eye shades, total black, you know, you know, we, mm-hmm. we do a lot. Of, and so to think that people are getting that dose or multiple times that dose, like laying on a street in Aurora, Colorado, oh. you know, know, with their eyes open. And I mean, I just can't even imagine, you know, yeah. if it's not done properly, ketamine can be very frightening. Right. Well, that's, I mean, for me growing up eighties and nineties, I always heard of it as special K, like it's the horse tranquilizer. Yeah. It will just knock you out. That's not therapeutic. I mean, that's recreational if you want to go for that, but that's not what we're talking about at all. Yeah. It's kind of off topic, but I don't know that we've actually touched upon this or maybe we did. Well, two things. One is that the legalization of MDMA or, you know, removing it from being a scheduled one substance, MDMA and psilocybin, uh, doesn't mean that you're going, I vaguely remember somebody saying this, but I just want to make sure that the listeners know that it doesn't mean that you're going to go to your prescribing provider and they're going to give you some psilocybin or MDMA here, go home, Right. that the use of the medicine is going to be in the context of an outpatient clinic. And it's estimated that MDMA will be legal by 2023 and then psilocybin by 2025. Wow. Mm. Although MDMA has been granted expanded access by, by the FDA. Hmm. So that's so cool. So we're going to see RJ Reynolds get in on it and we can get our Marlboro Mollies. I want to ask you guys just in, in terms of, of wrapping this if there's a takeaway you want to give our, our listeners, if they're interested in, in psychedelics and psychotherapy, whether they're therapists or clients or just people that are interested in this, what sort of your, your takeaway for them would be about what we've been talking about? Well, I think in general, psychedelics are going to revolutionize mental health, especially because you can't argue with the numbers. There is so much data out there right now in terms of with PTSD, 40 to 60 percent of people that take SSRIs don't respond to meds. Two thirds, I believe it's two thirds of patients either drop out or continue to meet PTSD, even with uh, psychotherapy. So when you have those types of numbers and I have there's much more data, but I'm trying to keep this brief. When you have those types of numbers and contrast that with the data on psilocybin and also the data with MDMA, then it's going to revolutionize the industry, the pharmaceutical industry. Having said that, because it only exists above ground right now, at least legally, I would really, really do homework if you do happen to find someone to hold space for you. I'd err on the side of caution of finding these substances and having a friend just sit with you. That can be very therapeutic. That can be very helpful. But your friend is your friend and they're not someone that's you know studied the psyche per se. Um, and so that can potentially be re-traumatizing. Again, if something comes up and there isn't the capacity to hold the container, it can be damaging. Mm-hmm. As I was biking here, I was thinking about, this is really embarrassing to admit, but when I was a kid, I, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. As I was biking here, I thought, 
MDMA is like a plus two sword. Because I remember in my first character in D&D, I had a plus two sword. I'm like, I'm going to just rampage through the whole world. And my, my DM dungeon master said, it's a really powerful thing. He said, but you need your companions. You need to plan. You need treasure. Mm-hmm. When I kept getting in these horrible situations and I, and my teammates, you know, or ex- expedition mates would have to bail me out. I kept thinking, I have a plus two sword. I have this incredible thing. But I didn't realize it was just a tool. Like what was really going to work was for us all to work together and to be this team approach. Whereas I just thought, okay, I have this immediate. And I think what's happening in psychedelic space now is that there's such excitement that people think, oh, okay, I have this magic, I have this amazing tool. Like I'm just, this is all I need. If I have a plus two sword, like I'm going to go to, well, no, that's the beginning. Like it's great to have one, but you got to do all the hard work. You got to do the teamwork. You got, you got to settle in for the long haul, although not as long a haul as it would have been. Right. I just want to also put it out there for just to reiterate psychedelic guided therapy is not for everybody. Yeah. There are some contraindications with that work, right. but I just wanted to add to what Craig was saying is that change is not linear, which we all know as therapists Change is also unpredictable. It is not uncommon for things to get worse before they get better, which is why it's critical to have a team of of care providers and a support system, self-care and community care, which we don't talk about enough of. Our first choice is not always the best choice. So give yourself space, right? You always like, this is what I'm going to do. And then give yourself more time, Mm -hmm. sit with it. So I think because... The data is so promising and there's so much media on the issue of these mind expanding substances that, of course, people people have hope because people want to feel better. But what isn't spoken and maybe, Craig, you can speak a little bit more to this. What we don't talk about enough is how hard it can be. You know, when you're in the trenches of your trauma and everything's been blown open, how emotionally tender and vulnerable you can be when you come out of that space. It's really hard work. I I wish we spoke more about how difficult it can be for some people because what you hear is like, oh, it's psychedelics wonderful. And, and I had this amazing spiritual experience and all that is true and all that does have the potential to happen. But when you're doing it in the context of therapy, it can be really rough. I don't think we speak about that enough. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That reminds me, Jose, of this concept in in the psychedelic therapy world of the therapeutic bends, like the scuba diving bends. Mm. And I've seen that a number of times where people make such rapid, profound improvement. It totally shakes them up. Like we, you know, in in the study we've seen divorces, we've seen people kind of have existential crisis. I've seen that in my own work and in the study where people get so much better so fast and like, what am I doing? Like, like talking heads, like, Mm -hmm. what what is this house and this beautiful wife? And how did I get here? I mean, I think Mm -hmm. people can just, and that can happen too. That's amazing. You know, sometimes, Yeah. And so sometimes the therapy can be, okay, so you finally discovered that you have windshield wipers and you now have a clean windshield (laughs) and you're just seeing the wreckage out there, but it's so nice to see, but some people like, wow, I wish, I wish I hadn't found the wipers. There's a lot. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tag that with a little 
outing myself as a D&D nerd that I, I always thought it was interesting that the six attributes that you can have, that there was intelligence and wisdom. Mm. I always thought that was weird. Why those two were like the same. I mean, there's like strength, dexterity, charisma. Jesus, I think I know them all. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> but intelligence and wisdom, like what's, what's the difference? And I remember I've looked this up several times that wisdom, that attribute for your character is about perception and insight. And that to me kind of caps, like you said, a plus two sword, I would say it's a plus two on wisdom. Like it's really Mm, giving you sort of that, that extra boost with perception and insight. Your windshield is now clear. Now you can see this. It's not all going to be rosy. Some of it's going to be really painful. Now, what do you do with this, with this perception and with the insight into yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazing. And if people want to find you guys, Jose, I think your website very appropriately named is theheldspace.com. So people can find you there. Yes. The website is The Held Space. It's also at The Held Space, H-E-L-D like dog, not The Help, but The Held Space on Instagram and also on Facebook, The Held Space. Awesome. And Craig, I think you avoid social media, but people can find you. (laughs) They can find me running mostly. (laughs) That's mostly what I I do that. I'm running a lot. Right. Awesome. Um, So Craig Heacock, H-E-A-C-O-C-K-M-D.com. My podcast is Back from the Abyss. It's a psychiatric storytelling podcast and deep dives on psychopharmacology and therapy and psychedelics. And it's mostly kind of psychiatry meets the moth or this American life. It's people telling their stories of how they plunged into the abyss and how they got out. And then maybe one out of every four episodes is me giving a little mini talk on like my desert island meds or... (laughs) Right. Oh, I'm excited. I love you guys. I'm so glad that you came on and talked to us. 